Okay, so it was December 31st, 1999, and I was at the liquor store getting provisions for my mama call. Man, the date has arrived. It's 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. Are you ready to meet him? We in a deacon's basement right now. Where are you? And I said, look at here, mama. Don't worry. The calendars are all messed up. You know what, with the Romans and the Incas and the translations and everything, we don't have to worry for another 12 years. My mama steady screaming, get right with the Lord, await his judgment. All right, all right, I will. I got to go, goodbye. Well, turned out, everybody in the deacon's basement had to come out eventually unjudged. It just occurred to me now that it is 12 years later. You see, Snappers, in certain circles, this time right now, is known as the true millennium, when a final reckoning must be made of the higher powers. But before that happens, I thought that we at SNAP would take some time out to thank everybody who made this show possible and ask forgiveness and compassion for any of those that we, or more likely, that I have offended. My name is Glenn Washington from PRX and NPR. Welcome to SNAP Judgment. The Look Back Episodes. Today, we're looking back at some of those things that made this past year so special, and one of those things, Snappers, was Cindy Champanella. She told Snap's Anna Heart of Gold Sussman about going to China and meeting her daughter for the very first time. When we got there, it was a cold day in January, and all the older children came rushing out to see us. They knew that we were there to do an adoption, and very few children are ever adopted, and they had practiced saying hello. They brought my child to me, my daughter Jacqueline, and she, of course, was absolutely terrified. She was four years old, and then she basically was told, these are your new parents, and get in the car with them. She was not about to do that. She planted her feet and she began to cry and make a sound, not even like a human cry. It was like listening to an animal. And all the cajoling and all the encouragement couldn't get her into the car, so we literally almost kidnapped her. We had to pick her up. My husband picked her up and kind of put her in the back seat of the car where she just laid there stiffly across my lap. And she screamed and she screamed and she screamed. Shout, 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 shout. And I kept believing, well, this will be when she gets home, when she gets to the United States, this will end. What I didn't know was that it was, this shadow would live with us every day. There was an interpreter there that was a guide for us, and she told the interpreter to explain to us that she had a baby, and she wasn't going to leave China without her baby. She called him Xiao Xiao, which is a Chinese nickname for very little. She explained that if the kids were older than three, they were given jobs. So her job, her responsibility was to care for these two little toddlers that were basically a head shorter than she was. She had potty trained them and she had would help them eat. But what she was the most proud of really was that she had protected them from bigger kids. She said she gave all her love to this little boy she had nicknamed Xiao Xiao and that she was not going to leave China without her baby. We were there for about two weeks total. And then when we came back here, within six weeks, she could speak and she could actually convey some pretty complex thoughts in full sentences. She talked about him constantly. The only way I can describe it was it was like living with a very short mother who had had a baby ripped from her arms. She never stopped talking about him. We just said to her, we can't bring him here. And of course, she couldn't understand the sophisticated system of how all the paperwork that's required and the red tape, and you can't just take a child out of there. To be honest, I never even thought about trying to bring him here. I just kept thinking that she would get over it. One of the things I can remember most vividly was the first time I took her to McDonald's. She couldn't believe that not only did you get this cool meal, but that you also got this little toy, you know, in the Happy Meal. 
But then I noticed every time we went there after that, she wouldn't open her Happy Meal package. She'd hold the toy up to the light to see what it was. And then when she got home, she stuffed him in a little box. And finally I asked her what she was doing, and she said, Shao Shao never had a little toy. There was no logic that you could give her in terms of trying to explain why he couldn't come here. She had noticed that we only had five chairs around our dining room table and that they were already full. And so she said one night, well, you know, he could just sit on my lap while we ate. And then one day she took me up and she showed me her bed and she said, you know, we wouldn't even need to get him his own bed. He could just slip right here on the other end of the bed from her. I started writing an email to a small group of friends and telling them about Jacqueline and her baby. Unbeknownst to me, and sometimes with my permission, these emails started to get forwarded to people who knew people who knew people, and then the responses started to come. I got emails from people all, literally all over the world saying, my prayer group in New York is praying for Jacqueline's baby. Our Indian reservation is praying to our ancestors for Jacqueline's baby. Our synagogue has taken up this cause. Is there any news? The lady I've never met, I wouldn't recognize her if she walked into the room from Minnesota, put up all the adoption fees and said, I'll pay the fees if we could bring him here. A lady in Tennessee said, I'll buy him clothes until he's 18 years old. Someone sent a bike from Florida. And then her story got told to some powerful folks. It ended up with a United States senator who ended up cutting through red tape on the INS side of things. And then the story was taken to the Chinese officials. And they worked together with the United States authorities. Fifteen months after she was adopted, Jacqueline walked back into that orphanage and grabbed the hand of her baby. Today, he's her cousin. He lives 20 minutes away from us. He was adopted by my sister, and he's part of our family. The way I think about it is this. If you think about love being a, a state where you can't be happy if the person that you love isn't happy, this is the way she loved that little boy. She never could rest knowing that he was still there. ahead. Go ahead. It's all right to cry a little bit. Shed that little tear. It's all right because you are not a robot, Snapper. You are not. And don't worry. Xiao Xiao's doing just fine. We'll have a link to some of Cindy's projects on our site, snapjudgment.org. Now, the other day, I'm kicked back, my feet up, reading Lord of the Rings, drinking a little grog, and Stephanie Fu comes in, tells me a Ken Silverstein story that supposedly occurred very near my hometown of Detroit, Michigan. And I hear it, snappers, and I chortle. No way could this possibly have been allowed to occur. I don't believe it. No way. But as it turned out, way. David was a fairly typical young boy. I mean, you know, rode around the neighborhood in his bicycle and played sports. And his grandfather, as a gift, gave him a book called The Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments. I think it was the 1960 edition. It was this period of great optimism about science, where science could cure every disease and eradicate poverty. And of course, nuclear energy was going to be too cheap to meter. Here, in fact, is the answer to a dream as old as man himself. A giant of limitless power at man's command. In the atom. David just became a convert. He just became absolutely devoted to science. I mean, I talked to this old physics teacher in high school who said that David's dream was to collect every element on the periodic table, which is, you know, as this professor said, I don't know about you, but at my age, my dream was to get a car. He became very adept at using chemicals by making very elaborate fireworks and entertain everyone on the 4th of July. You know, these weren't just firecrackers, these were like major rockets. His parents vividly recalled one evening as they were sitting in the living room watching TV, David used to work down in the basement because he pretty much destroyed his bedroom with his experiments. I guess there'd been all sorts of fires and small explosions and chemical spills. And they heard a very large explosion and rushed downstairs and David was laying on the floor in a sort of semi-conscious state. His eyebrows were smoking, his parents said. And it turned out that he had 
been experimenting with red phosphorus, which is highly explosive. He'd been pounding on it with a screwdriver when it blew up. For months afterwards, he had to return to the ophthalmologist and he had to have pieces of embedded plastic in his eyes that he had to have extracted. But then he became interested in nuclear energy. And the simple explanation was that he remembered his parents sitting around the table fighting about how expensive electricity was. And he'd been reading about nuclear energy and specifically about breeder reactors, which turned out to be this complete illusion. But the idea was that a breeder reactor would not only generate energy, but you would actually produce more fuel as he was discovering science, he also got involved in the Boy Scouts. And David was a very exuberant Boy Scout and sought out to achieve the status of Eagle Scout. And to do that, David decided that he was going to try to build a nuclear reactor. So he was determined to, to help fulfill the dream of cheap nuclear energy. Being a teenager under the best of circumstances is difficult, and when your parents are divorced, it's probably a little bit harder. And I think part of what David was doing, and he would say as much, was that he was trying to exert some kind of control over his life. And he was very, very good at it, too. He impressed people. David was this very popular kid. He had a highly desirable girlfriend who was really impressed with his scientific achievements. He got a Geiger counter from a mail order house and he used to drive around Detroit and go to antique shops and test old antique clocks, for example, with the Geiger counter to see if they were emitting radioactivity because back in the early part of the 20th century, they used to paint the faces of clocks with radium to make it glow in the dark until they discovered, of course, that radium was highly radioactive. And in fact, the people who painted the clocks, lots of them died of cancer. Radium, half-life, 1,600 years. He would write to smoke detector companies posing as a student doing a project for school. And so a smoke detector company sent him about 100 old detectors and he extracted this little chip of americium in it. Americium, half-life, 432 years. He got thorium from old Coleman gas lanterns. Thorium is highly radioactive. Thorium, half-life, 14 billion years. He wrote to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission posing as a professor and engaged in lengthy exchanges with an official at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission who kept providing him with information. Gee, what's the best way to purify radium? And he did right away and obtain very small samples of uranium from a company in Czechoslovakia. Uranium, half-life 4.5 billion years. He didn't just go out and get these gas mantles off these old Coleman lanterns and put them into a shoebox. He, well, he did do that. But before doing that, he actually was able through incredibly elaborate experimentation to purify some of these materials. He was using coffee filters to try to uh, strain thorium and radium and stuff like this. The lab was a potting shed in the backyard. That was about as sophisticated as it got. No responsible adult intervened at any point. I mean, this was going on for years, 92, 93, 94, between the ages of 14 and 17. I mean, he'd be out until two or three in the morning in the backyard potting shed with a blowtorch and he'd dispose of his clothing and they thought it was cute. He was driving his car around 2.30 in the morning, and it's never been exactly clear what was going on, but somebody thought he was trying to steal tires from a car. The police came by and stopped him, and then they searched his car. They found a toolbox that was shut with a padlock and then sealed with duct tape. David, he was very vague and not very cooperative, in fact, but he did warn them that this might be radioactive materials in this toolbox. At which point the police did something very baffling. They were fearful that they had an atomic bomb on their hands, and yet they towed David's car to their own headquarters before deciding what exactly to do with it. And then they realized, oh, we might have a atomic bomb out in the parking lot. We better get everybody out of the headquarters and warn people away. And they ended up calling federal government officials at the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency and the FBI and deciding what to do about it. So then the feds and state officials go out to his mom's house and they discover this 
catastrophe in the backyard potting shed where they find jars of acids and Pyrex cups and all sorts of powders and they seized all of the materials and they later tested it. I've got the records from the Environmental Protection Agency and the police reports and they really did find excessive levels of radioactivity high enough levels that they had to bury it at a low-level dump site in Utah. The highest count they found when they tested it was coming off of a vegetable can, and they found a count which was a thousand times higher than normal levels of background radiation. It was 50,000 counts per minute. Thorium, it was found that he had purified it to at least 9,000 times the radioactive level found in nature. He had to have done sophisticated experiments to purify these materials. So this is when they realized that, you know, they had a serious problem. I mean, his mother lived in a residential neighborhood. There were tens of thousands of people in the area. They dubbed it an imminent and substantial endangerment to public health and welfare. And so they sealed off the shed. It really tried to keep this quiet. So one day the neighbors discovered that there are men in funny white suits in the backyard cutting up this potting shed with chainsaws and putting it into radioactive containers. That's when the neighbors found out there was something really scary going on next door. This had been the focus of his adolescence. So when the police stopped him and they collected all of his materials and raided his shed, he told me that he was pretty bummed out at the time. In the end, it was determined, and rightly so, that David was not a terrorist. He was not out to build a nuclear bomb. He was not out to, to harm anyone. Look, it's impossible to build a nuclear reactor in your backyard. I mean, David's ambition was preposterous, and so he didn't come anywhere near his goal of generating nuclear energy, he did achieve some extraordinary scientific successes. He had gotten his Atomic Energy Merit Badge and he became an Eagle Scout. After graduating from high school, he joined the Navy and he was stationed for a time, oddly enough, on the USS Enterprise, which is a nuclear-powered aircraft. He was not allowed to be anywhere near the nuclear reactors because it was deemed that he'd already been overexposed to radiation in his life. He had assured me at various points that he had completely closed off that chapter of his life and that he was no longer interested in this sort of stuff. And then, you know, as I was completing the book, it turned out that he was planning trips up to Canada to scour for uranium. And so he still, for years, dabbled, and for all I know, still does in these sort of uh, scientific experiments. Big thanks to Ken Silverstein, Harper's Magazine, and Emil Klein. Ken Silverstein wrote a book about this story called Radioactive Boy Scout. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. Now, as you may know, 2011 was the year of the rabbit. But that, dear snappers, did not stop me from telling the story about chickens. Okay, so in my third grade class, we got to put these fertilized eggs in an incubator. And every morning, I would check them. And one day, I saw one of the shells start to crack. Crack just a little bit. And this wet baby chick wiggled its way right out of the egg. And its brother and sister on either side did the same thing. And it seemed like just seconds, seconds before these slimy creatures morphed into cheaping yellow puffballs, and they were so cute, 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 and I was like, yeah! I went home and said, Daddy, 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 I want a chicken. He said, you're luck. You're going to raise chicken. And that day, we started building chicken coops, and we worked, and we worked, and one week later, they arrived. 1,000 baby chicks. Right on, Dad. They were yellow and cheeping and clean, 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 soft, soft, soft. We played with them, and they ran around. It was so much fun. We fed them the corn, and they made a crazy mess, but they were so cute. Then they started getting bigger, and they weren't yellow puffballs anymore, and they started poking at each other, poking. And every time you turned around, they were fighting. And then one time, I went out to the chicken coop. I opened the door, and a bunch of chickens were eating another chicken. Stop it! 
stop. I, I tried to save it, but it was too late. What is wrong with y'all? And the chickens got where they'd attack anything, anytime. If a bird had a spot or a limp or didn't make the right sound, they'd attack it. They'd attack to kill, and the smell was nasty. They made piles and piles of chicken crap, and Dad said it was my job to clean it up, and you could go blind shoveling that mess. And one time, I slipped and I fell all in it, and the chickens started attacking me, going for the eyes, and I screamed and knocked chickens everywhere and ran out into the fresh air, into the fresh air. And when the truck came to get the chickens to turn them into dinners, I laughed. I laughed all loud. Them little demons were about to get just what they deserved. You know, well, I'm a chicken fried And cold beer on a Friday night A pair of jeans that fit just right And the radio Snap Judgment, the 2011 Look Back episode will continue in just a moment. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. This is a special edition we're calling the 2011 Snap Judgment Look Back episode. And every once in a while, we run across a person with such an amazing storytelling voice that it doesn't matter what you're doing, you just gotta listen. And this year, Donald Cabana, who formerly served as the warden of Mississippi's Parchment Prison, he wins the I will not get out of my car until this person is finished speaking on the radio prize. Now, this story does contain some graphic imagery. Donald Cabana, take it away. The method at that time was the gas chamber. I knew that at some point in my career, I would probably be faced with that task of executing somebody. Any person who takes on a warden's job, they better do it with the eyes wide open. You go into it understanding that this may be part of my job. And if I'm not willing to do this particular part of my job, then I shouldn't take the job in the first place. Edward Earl Johnson was the first execution that I actually presided over. He was an interesting guy. He had been convicted of uh, killing a town marshal about uh, three months after he graduated from high school. He came from a a good family, had been raised in the church and stuff, and uh, shortly before the execution, the weekend before, we were having Sunday dinner. And um, my wife, she looked at me and she said, are you ready for this? I almost flippantly, nonchalantly said, hell, I've spent 20 years in my career being ready for this moment. You know, combat in Vietnam. And she said, I think you're going to find that those are two very different experiences. I said, well, maybe so. But look, it goes with the territory. And if I'm not willing to do it, I don't deserve the job and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Most inmates, you know, on death row are going to tell you they're innocent. But usually, when you get right down to it's time to do the deed, the inmate will come around. He may not just come right out and say, okay, I did it. They might say, uh, please apologize to the victim's family. Well, you know, you're not going to do that if you didn't do something. 
But in his case, at the point in time that I finished reading the death warrant, when it was time to ask him if he had any final words, he is strapped into the chair inside the gas chamber. I leaned down and I just kind of whispered to him and said, Edward, it's not important that anybody in this room hears you say, I'm guilty, I did it. But what is important is that you're at peace with your God before I have to give the order to do this. And um, I thought to myself at that moment, hey, that's pretty strong stuff, that's pretty good stuff, and that'll get his attention. He looked at me and said, Warden, I'm at peace with my God. How are you going to be with yours when you realize that I'm being murdered? I'm innocent. And those were his last words, I'm innocent. I told my wife. She met me outside. She said, how was it? I said it was horrendous. It takes too long. It's potentially excruciatingly painful. We're supposed to be better than they are. I said, uh, if I never have to do it again, I won't be sorry. One's enough for me. I don't know how folks in Texas do it. And uh, we started walking back to the house. And I said, you know, while I was doing this, everybody else in Mississippi is asleep. And I've been busy doing their dirty work for them. We got to the house. I climbed in the shower. And I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed because I felt dirty. Well... Six weeks later, it got worse because I, I did my second execution. Only in this case, the, the guy never denied his guilt. Connie Ray Evans. The problem was that I had become extremely close to him. That happens sometimes. It's inexplicable. It breaks every rule that wardens have about don't get close to the cons. And my wife used to warn me, that guy's going to burn you. And I said, look, out of all the inmates on death row, Connie's the best behaved, never causes any problems. He's as quiet as a church. She said, I'm not talking about him escaping or hurting anybody. He's going to burn you. He sends you birthday cards. You go down there and you play checkers with him. He's gotten under your skin. You're you're much too close to him for your own good. What's going to happen if his time comes while you're the warden and lo and behold two weeks later the governor called and said we're going to have another execution in 30 days and I said um, okay who is it and they said let's see a guy by the name of Connie Ray Evans and I was just stunned I had uh, instituted very liberal visitation policies for prisoners facing execution. His mother, when I had to tell her it was time for the visit to be over, I went outside the building to smoke a cigarette. And she came outside and she came up to me and she put her hand on my arm and she said, I know you have children. Please don't kill my child. Those words rang in my ears. I went back to my house that evening and I just wanted to hug my kids and not let them go. The night of the execution, when it was time to to walk the mile, we started walking him down the row, and the inmates, as we passed their cells, one by one, started saying goodbye to him. The officers who worked on the row had all gathered up at the end of the block, and they were all standing here with these big burly guys, you know, with tears in their eyes. And about halfway down the row, Somebody, one of the inmates, started very softly singing Amazing Grace. And by the time we got to the end of the road to go into the last night room next to the chamber, uh, the entire cell block was singing. You know, it was the the 30 minutes or so in, in the last night room was really awkward. I found myself saying really awkward things to him like, uh, 
we're going to go through this together. I'm going to be with you every step of the way, knowing it. Well, not exactly every step of the way, because I'm not strapping my butt into that chair. We talked about mundane things, and I thought it doesn't get much harder than this. But we got him into the gas chamber, and, and we were strapping him into the chair, and I read the death warrant, and when I asked him if he had anything to say, he said, I want to tell you something privately. I just want you to know that I love you. To be honest with you, I think for an instant I wanted to tear up, but hell, I'm the warden. And I've got a team of employees that are expecting me to be a leader. And uh, you don't do that if you're out there boohooing about executing somebody that murdered another human being, no matter how much you might have liked him personally. I stepped out. When we were closing the chamber door, he said, wait a minute, Warden, I have one more question. And I stepped back in, and he said, uh, how do I do this? And I said, look, you're going to be able to see me uh, through the glass. And when the gas begins to rise up, you look at me, and I'll nod my head, and you take a couple of deep breaths, and I promise you it's going to be over very quickly which, of course, was not true. But I never took my eyes off him. We were fixated on each other, and I just looked at him and shook my head. I realized uh, about a minute and a half into it, I looked at the doctor and I, and I said, Jesus, he's holding his breath. He couldn't hear me through the glass, but I said, breathe, damn it, breathe. And he was still holding his breath about two and a half minutes into it. And I banged my fist on the glass and said, breathe. It took about four and a half minutes before he lapsed into unconsciousness. I found myself standing there wondering how we both got there. How had our lives come together under those circumstances? I went home and I told my wife, okay, you were right. I shouldn't have got close to him. And um, I told her what he said. Uh, she began to cry a little bit and she said, but you're wrong about something. And I said, what? She said, you will come to treasure the fact that you knew him the way you did. And you'll treasure for the rest of your life what he said to you. I do. Um, I do. We were having Sunday dinner, and uh, my oldest daughter all of a sudden just said, do you worry about being forgiven? I did struggle very privately with the issue of my judgment. Last year, I, I went into congestive heart failure, and it caused my kidneys to fail, and, and it got real complicated and touchy for a while. I remember laying there uh, praying the rosary and thinking to myself, um, I want to make sure I've covered as many of the bases as possible in terms of seeking forgiveness and redemption. And so the executions were part of my conversation with, with my God. You know, one of the great criticisms that a lot of people have about uh, death row inmates is that, well, of course they've found religion. They all find God when they are told they're going to be executed. But I remember, you know, my priest was standing there with me, and I'm hanging on to my rosary, and I'm praying. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're not different from some inmate on death row. That's right. Your life is different for having heard that piece. Thank you, Donald Cabana. And thank you, Anna Sussman. There is more to come. The 2011 Look Back Special returns in just a moment. Do not go anywhere. Thank <laughs> you.
Welcome back to the Snap Judgment Look Back Special from NPR and PRX. I'm Glenn Washington, and you may know that great stories have great characters. Our next guest, Kiwi Neff, is a great character. He's the type of fellow you can't take your eyes off of. Big bear of a man, shaggy mane, piercing eyes, and this giant holler. And yeah, he had one hell of a story to tell. With the undertow Takes me where I need to go I pay heed to your words no more And I go with the undertow Peaceful Valley, Spokane, Washington, two guys. The first, Kiwi Neff, feels everyone is mad at him. His girlfriend about to have his baby is mad at him. His daughter is mad at him. He's mad at himself. The second guy, he's in worse shape, standing on top of the Monroe Street Bridge, looking down, down to the swollen Spokane River. He's been here before, but this time, this time he's going to do it right. Doesn't think about the water, closes his eyes tight, 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 takes that last final step into nothing. He's underwater before he realizes he doesn't want to die, but it's too late. The angry river, broken leg, broken shoulder, broken man, slam against rocks and trees and dirt. And all he can do between mouthfuls of water is scream. Kiwi Neff is on the riverbank and hears that scream. Now he had a powerful voice. He definitely wanted to live. His cry for help was strong. And so I went and grabbed my bike, and, and I rode up, and I, I got to this vista at the old Brass Finder's place, and I could see the guy in the water. And I thought, that guy's dead. What's your plan? My plan was to, A, um, not die trying to rescue this guy, and B, try to rescue this guy. And that was about really all I had for a plan. So you see him moving Moving really fast. There's a whole lot of water moving quick. Honestly, I really thought this guy was a goner. The Spokane River takes a lot of people, and he's in the middle of it. Hanging on to a dead branch. I'm going to let's go. I scrambled up the riverbank, got back on my bike, headed downstream, and I got to this footbridge that they have. There's people around with ropes and buoys on the end of them. And I'm going, yes, yes, right on, you know, cool. I come up to this guy with a rope on my bike, and I said, he's coming. Try to catch him at the bridge. He was turning his back to me as he answered me, saying, that won't work. And I'm telling him, he's coming right now. I mean, not tomorrow, not in one minute. He's coming right now. There was an instinctive moment I wanted to clock the guy and take this rope from him and try to save the guy. And then this was like all of a millisecond because my adrenaline's running. I'm, I'm in overdrive. And, I mean, it just must have been one split second later that he just went floating right by them. And they probably felt pretty stupid. Kiwi knows this river leads to a falls. And if you go down the falls, it's all over. I took off like a jackrabbit as fast as I could. I got to where I got, and sure enough, he's flowing just like the river flowed, and he's, that's when he's coming to that wide area where it slows down. This is a place I can go in after him. I can take, a, I can take the chance. So you're thinking, it's now or never. I've got to go in, or I'm not going to go in at all. Yeah, absolutely. This was the last chance. This was no man's land. So you're like, you're ready at any moment to strip off naked and go into the water. That was the hard part because I knew I might end up being naked in front of a bunch of people and I didn't really want that. And I was working myself up to that going, this person's going to die. You're going to have to. And I don't wear underwear. So I was going like, you are going to be butt naked. You know, if you're going after this guy and I was like, that's it. I don't care. I'm going to be butt naked. Okay. At this point, I have a spot I'm going after him, and I hear somebody yelling from a long ways off, "Don't go in!" And then they're and they're running, 
and I hear it again, don't go in, we'll have true drowning victims. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm going in after this guy. I went in after him, um, racer dive, swam up to him as fast as I could and stopped about five feet from him. And I aggressively said to him, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And he said, I can't move. And I said, that's, that, that, turn on your back. Cause he was facing me and I'll pull you in by your shirt. It's cold. Yeah, it's really cold, but I'm not feeling the cold at all. I'm not, I'm in two, I'm in shock kind of with this guy, but I'm swimming really hard. And the channel with his rapids was quickly coming up. The shore was just moving fast. So I was kind of like, oh no, you know, this is, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. The fire department, the guy who had the rope and the buoy caught up to us and threw us a rope. Oh, let's like, grab that rope. Grab that rope. He was able to grab the rope. They brought him in and rescue personnel were all coming, running, charging really fast at that point. He was incoherent, he couldn't talk. He was a big guy. It took 10 men to get him up from the riverbank. There was some nice guy there that asked me if I wanted my clothes. I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and I left. I just, you know, I was like, well, okay, time to go. How'd you feel? I was pretty high after because it was like, I didn't blow my own horn at all. I didn't, I didn't have to. Everybody comes up and the news crews are calling and all these people, yes, he's amazing. He's a great guy. <laughs> are you proud? I'm proud for, you know, people that can say, that love me and care about me and say, you know, my father did this or my friend did this. But uh, myself, more humbled by the whole experience because in a way, you know, this guy giving me the opportunity to go in there and save him has helped me tremendously, you know, so in a way this guy saved my life. Big thanks to Kiwi Neff. That story was produced by the Uber producer himself, Mark Ristich, and Pat Masidi Miller. Now, we're going to finish up the 2011 Look Back special with a live tale from Snap Live by our own Josh Healy. And he came to slay the live audience for our recent Drama Mama special. Josh Healy, take it away. Last year, I went to the best wedding ever. It was in Connecticut, and my cousin Naomi was getting married to her girlfriend, Lisa. And it was a beautiful wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. All the families were there. The aunts, the uncles, the grannies, the babies. The Manischewitz wine was flowing out the hall like honey. The rabbi got drunk and punched out the DJ after having a gila. It was awesome. But the best part about it, here were two women getting married, and it just wasn't a big deal. They were in love, and that was enough, which was especially cool because my cousin Naomi had never really come out to the family. But we have this idea in America. It's like, you're not gay until I know that you're gay. And you know that I know that you're gay, then you're gay. Which makes no sense. It makes no sense. So I thought about this as a straight dude. Okay, as a mostly straight dude. Let's keep it real. I thought about what would it be like if straight folks had to come out too. So I imagine, I imagine myself 
15 years old, having to come out to my parents. <laughs> tell them the truth about what's going on. So I'm like, Mom, Dad, I have something I need to tell you. Mom, you're probably going to want to sit down for this. And the thing, the thing you have to understand about my parents is my parents are super liberal. I mean, super crazy liberal. I'm talking pro-choice, pro-Cuba, pro-Lorax. They make, they make Berkeley look like West Texas. So I know that somewhere in the back of their minds, they want a gay son. They need a gay son. It's like the missing badge of honor on their socialist Boy Scout uniforms. So here we are. I'm nervous. We're sitting at the kitchen table. My mom, sitting in full lotus position. <laughs> My dad, standing beside her, gently massaging her shoulders like any good feminist husband would. <laughs> and me, my legs are shaking. My voice is cracking. And I'm like, Mom! Dad. There's something I need to tell you. I don't know how to say it, so I'm just going to say it. I'm, I'm straight. And they're like, No! My mom just sits there, shaking her head, trying to find the center of her chi. And she's saying, where did we go wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. It didn't just happen. I was born this way. But I tried to fit in. Lord knows I tried. I used to wear purple. I went to every Lady Gaga show I could, but no, no. I like Metallica. And bowling. And mom and dad, yes, I like women. And I like this one woman. And mom, I want you to meet her. But I'm nervous. There's something you need to know about her first. I'm afraid to tell you, but you need to know, mom, she's white. And they're like, no! Another badge ripped off the socialists wanting to have a biracial grandbaby Boy Scout uniform. And I tell you this because it's tough and it's true. The beautiful tragedy of coming out straight in America. If you ever get a chance to see Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment players, David Brandt and Tim Frick, 
Rocket Live and back up the best storytellers in the world, be sure you run, not walk to get there and get a good seat. Come see, come see. It's that time. But don't be sad. Don't be blue. Join Snap Nation on the Facebook, on the Twitter. Get hours of Snap storytelling at snapjudgment.org. Now, we want to thank everybody. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the hardest working team in show business, I kid you not. But don't let me forget the Uber producer, the collard greens to my candied yams, Mr. Mark Ristich. And big love, big thanks to Team Snap. Rita Daniels, Stephanie Fu, Anna Sussman, Will Urbina, Mitzi Ma, Natalia Yeager, Joe Golan, Roman Mars, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gorio, Lindsay Lee Keel, and Jamie DeWolf. Did you ever wonder who was in the closet? Who's that eating all the lunches left in the office refrigerator at night? Do not call Interpol. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Keep some towels out and extra peanut butter on hand. Youth Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media because somebody has to. PRX.org. And by now, you know, you know this is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you could shrink down to a microscopic size, get injected into the body of an ailing scientist charged with repairing his heart, and just as you are about to save the day, you could expand back to regular size. Yuck. You could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.